السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله تبارك وتعالى وسلم على سيدنا محمد سيدنا وسندنا وحبيبنا وشفيعنا مولانا صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وأصحابه وأزواجه وضرياته وأهل بيته ومن تبعهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين وبعد Alhamdulillah, today we are blessed to be in the shade of a great month, in the shade of a great blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala this month of Ramadan, uh, albeit in somewhat adverse circumstances. The propagation throughout the world of the epidemic coronavirus has caused uh, Muslim and non-Muslim alike uh, in most places uh, that we know of in the world to be in some sort of varying level of enforced lockdown and uh, people are uh, in, in, a, in a state of a fair amount of angst. The first line of those who are going through difficulty are those who are in fact themselves uh, ill and struggling with the sickness or those who are involved in treating such people. We ask that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give shifa for any of our brothers and sisters who now uh, or in the future suffer from this ailment in any way, shape or form. And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give his help and his madad and his barakah uh, and his ta'yid in full measure to anybody who's involved in uh, treating the sick or dealing with the uh, aftermath uh, of the difficulties caused by this epidemic. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from them. Uh, their service and make it a means for their uh, najat and their salvation uh, in the hereafter and the rectification of the state, uh, not only of their own state, but the state of the Ummah of the Prophet wasallam in this world. Ameen. And then there's another uh, strange, I guess, set of difficulties or set of uh, crises that the Ummah is suffering from and that the world is suffering from. Uh, the bizarre kind of being stuck between the devil and the deep blue sea uh, of either uh, staying at home and uh, enforcing rigorous social distancing and lockdown protocols, which will save us from a just a, a blooming of epidemic and on the flip side the specter of an economy which is breaking and that will uh, continue to break and the more we i guess stay away from business as usual the higher degree of irreparability that will enter uh, into that economy has caused a kind of existential pause uh, and pondering a moment in which people uh, who thought that those things that were too big to fail and those things that were too important to stop are starting to falter and uh, are necessarily stopping. And we're getting a moment to think about those things that we never allowed ourselves to think about, uh, that we were afraid of thinking about, which is what is the world like and what will the world be like without uh, a number of things that we took for granted. And, uh, you know, this is an entire world order. It doesn't have to do with America or with Europe or with China or with Russia or with any major world powers. It's an entire world order um, based on the model of commerce that we do, the types of governments that we have, the basic assumptions, modern and postmodern, that we have, that society works on, what is real and what's important for us. All of it is shut down. Uh, you know, that same oil that people were fighting and killing each other uh, for just not too long ago. Um, that oil, because of a small batch of nucleotides and uh, uh, peptide-bonded amino acids, uh, in a way that even a biologist cannot confidently say is alive. Kind of like Jahannam, ثُمَّ لَا يَمُوتُ فِيهَا وَلَا يَحْيَا You can't say that it's... Uh, 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 it's it's dead matter, but it's not quite alive, is it? And so this little thing is like flying around, and it's turned that same oil that we were all ready to kill each other uh, over uh, into what? Into 
something that people are trying to get our, our their hands off of. Oil futures are, you know, or uh, you know, for some point, uh, some time, if not still, they're trading negative, meaning that it doesn't cost money to get the oil, but they'll pay you to take it off their hands. Um, those things that were unthinkable just a couple of days ago have now become a new reality, and I'm willing to bet that you know things people are w wondering and waiting when things are going to get back to normal. I'm willing to bet they're not going to ever go back to quite normal. Um, and part of that is because they shouldn't, because normal wasn't right. But part of it is because it can't, because certain things, once they're broken, cannot be unbroken. One of the big concerns that I have in this ummah, and one of the big concerns that I have, trust me, there's no love lost, at least with me, Mowgli Hamza. You know, people, people see me and they ask, where are you from? You know, people, random uh, people who sit in an airplane with me, white folks and like, you know, black folks and just, you know, people who are just, um, I guess, don't know anything else other than America. They ask me, uh, you know, where I'm from. And I said, I'm an American. Of course, I'm an American. You know how I can tell I'm an American? And they say, how? I say, because an immigrant wouldn't be crazy enough to grow such a huge beard and dress like a foreigner right now. An immigrant would be ready to snap and integrate and yes sir no sir and you know be be avid to show the enjoyment of the kool-aid uh, being drunk uh, of the american dream and being accepted for it because their coming was a choice i'm like everybody else i'm born here you're born here we all suffer from the pain of not knowing who we are or what our purpose is we all suffer from the pain of the aimlessness and the pointlessness of this existence and this system which we mentioned just a minute ago is breaking down and uh, you know, it's not. There's not a whole lot of love lost. You know, I'm. I'm I, I pray that anyone who's infected with disease, Allah Taala, give them comfort from their suffering, and anyone who is, uh, you know, has lost their means of livelihood or uh, is suffering from economic difficulty, that uh, you know, Steve Mnuchin and Donald Trump send them their their check quickly if it hasn't already direct deposited. And that Allah Ta'ala give them a solution for, you know, whatever, after two weeks when that runs out as well, if even that. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying that I, I'm happy that people are suffering, but the system itself, there's no love lost there. Um, but as a person who thinks about stuff for a living, and as a person who, I guess a significant portion of the ummah and, and, uh, of American society somewhat outsources their thinking uh, to the class of people that I belong to. Um, for better or worse. One of the things that really concerns me is that this age has laid bare uh, a very old chasm and a very old gap in the, 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 the Muslim Ummah, uh, and in particular in its civilization, which is what? Which is when the Ottoman Empire and when the great, when the great uh, empires of the pre-modern Muslim world uh, kind of had their tryst with the mechanized and technologically superior armies of the colonizers of the Farangi. Um, and they started losing battle after battle. With the Ottoman Empire, literally, like after almost 300 years, if not more, of complete supremacy and hegemony on by land and by sea, um, where they never lost any battles, or if a battle was lost, it was something that was that, that's highlighted in a way to show that it's the exception that proves the rule, which is that the Ottomans never would lose. Um, now they're winning battle after battle, or sorry, losing battle after battle, battle after battle to their enemies on what they would consider their home turf. And they were smart people. They were not, uh, they were not stupid people. You know what I mean? They weren't people who, you know, they weren't people who thought that like, well, we're Muslims. We say, la ilaha illallah, we'll win one day, you know, for free. Uh, they realize that there's only a certain number of battles in a certain, whether they be in war or uh, through economic competition or cultural, uh, scientific, learning-related uh, competition. Um, they knew there's only a certain number of battles you can lose uh, until your entire civilization falters and it falls. And that's the way of the world. That's a stark reality. And, uh, you know, we're not immune to that as Muslims. And uh, that's where the test lies which is that we have to survive as well, but we have to survive in a better way. And it's better for us in this world and it's better for us in the hereafter. But if we don't do the things that we need to do uh, to survive, um, for sure, definitely praying five times a day and 
you know, being a Hafid al-Qur'an and all of these other things, uh, they're not going to in and of themselves be sufficient. And this is the lesson of Sa'i. Uh, this is the lesson of striving. Allah Ta'ala says in his book that uh, insan doesn't receive anything except for the thing that he strives for. Meaning that Sayyidah Hajar alayhi salam uh, and said the baby Sayyidina Ismail alayhi salam uh, who the Sa'i of Hajj is named after, the striving of Hajj is named after. What is that striving? That you run, you walk briskly and bain al-milayn al-akhbarayn between the green markers and the feet, button al-masir. You actually, uh, uh, you actually run uh, for some time. And, uh, you know, everyone has that feeling of running. You know, I go for my daily walk when the coronavirus is shut down. And I talk to a number of different people. Maybe you've been uh, called by me and spoken to me for a good 10, 15, 20 minutes. And sometimes when a conversation goes into a weird direction, I notice that my speed of walking has sped up. And sometimes uh, I'm walking faster because I like what's being spoken about. So I guess my mind in some way or another is telling my body to hurry up and go toward that thing quicker. And sometimes when I'm talking to someone, I find myself walking faster and I know it's because my mind is telling me, um, speed up, because this thing we're talking about, you need to run from it as fast as you can. And sometimes I speed up and uh, I, you know, I don't know if I'm walking towards something or away from something, but I just speed up because there's an anxiety that, that, that certain uh, topics or certain speech uh, creates inside of my heart. And so, uh, you know, coming back to what we were talking about in terms of that... Uh, uh, you know, that sa'i, that there's a point in, in that, that walk between Safa and Marwa, you literally have to run. Uh, you're literally, it's a sunnah, I should say, for the men at least to run. And, you know, there are certain things you're running toward and there's certain things you're running away from. And, uh, but you got to run, you got to, you got to hustle. Uh, because you're not going to get anything in life except for that thing that you hustle for. And then that thing that you hustled for, it will be seen one day. So, you know, your prayers and your uh, fasting and your dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's definitely great madad in them. And there are miraculous uh, occurrences in which because of them and them alone in a way that's clear for a person to see, uh, may a person sometimes be granted help and victory from Allah ta'ala. But in general, they're not the, they're not the things you do that uh, they themselves make victory, that you read like five juz of Qur'an and all of a sudden, you know, your air force becomes invincible uh, or that all of a sudden your business becomes viable or all of a sudden, you know, you uh, uh, get into shape and are in great cardiovascular condition or whatever. No, the, 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 you do those things in order to receive legitimacy and mandate from the Rabb that he gave you these gifts and you're actually worthy of them. Uh, you're, they're not wasted on you, rather they're, they're, you're worthy of them. And so, uh, you know, the elders, they knew that, you know, this is not going anywhere good. And it's definitely not the Ottomans were not the first ones. You know, the, um, the, the Mongols, they also desolated a, a great amount of the central Muslim homeland. And, uh, you know, the Muslims knew people are petty. They're fighting with one another. The Crusaders desolated a great amount of the Muslim homeland. Why? Because they knew every prince in every city is fighting against his brother and trying to sell out the, the Masjid al-Aqsa or sell out Damascus in order to get Halab or sell out Halab in order to get D Damascus or uh, sell out Damascus in order to get uh, Al-Quds or sell out Quds to get whatever. Just people are just there to uh, sell uh, one another and sell those things that are supposed to be sacred. And so even in those generations, the people knew that when you behave in a bad way, you're going to lose, you're going to get beat. The immediacy, however, with the Ottoman experience and with the experience of the Mughal Empire and with the experience of uh, the Muslims' uh, tryst with modern, uh, the modern Farangi uh, 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 military economic uh, establishment, is that they, they saw that if we don't figure out what we're not doing and we need to do and what we're doing and we not, need to not do, very quickly, we are going to we're going to go by the wayside. We are going to go from being masters to slaves. We are going to become obsolete very quickly, and uh, that's not because we pray five times a day, and it's not because we uh, you know because we fast in the month of Ramadan. Uh, rather, what is going to happen is that we are going to be then placed under the heel of a people who 
don't appreciate what it means to pray five times a day or to fast in the month of Ramadan, or as it would seem until a plague comes down, how to wash yourself when you use the bathroom or how to wash your hands or do any of these things. And uh, that's that's a problem. And so what the Ottoman state, uh, what they, you know, one of, one of the solutions that they had is that we have to send uh, some people, uh, students, military officers and intelligentsia to to Europe and study from them and then bring some of their people over to our lands and have them teach and have them modernize and mechanize and show how things are supposed to work. And that, 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 that tryst was, it was a mixed, it was a mixed experience. Maybe it happened also in Egypt uh, to some degree as well uh, in the beginning. And then afterward, all of the, the rest of the Muslim world essentially will go through this experience. And what it ends up producing is, uh, Two groups of people. Obviously, every group, there's sellouts amongst them. There are people who are just looking, you know, looking out for their own good. There are people who are weak in character, uh, morally weak people. But not all of the, but not all of the problem I'm about to mention is because of, uh, you know, selling out or because of being morally weak. Um, rather, what happened is that this uh, modernization, this acquisition of material sciences and material. Uh, you know, uh, proficiency in the material sciences and and advanced knowledge with regards to uh, material things. Uh, it created a chasm between the ulama class and the class of people who were who were um, who who were sent or who would sit and learn these material sciences and materialistic. Uh, arts and sciences from these people and that was a chasm that wasn't really there from before if you read the the uh, you know the the ottoman state uh, its history and uh, if you read the uh, you know to some degree the Mughal empire as well you see that the judges the qudat they form a very important part of the state and that the understanding and the you know the understanding that the populace had with with the emir and the armies had with the emir um, that made them, you know, made made it a really important and powerful state, especially in the Ottoman uh, in the Ottoman example, was the idea that that uh, you know the point of the sultan or the point of the ghazi or the point of the later on uh, uh, the uh, um, you know the, the the person who would take the the reinal title the khalifa. Uh, was that they are there to be obeyed and they are there to receive the help of the people and the help from the higher realm uh, why because of their uh, because of their intention to implement uh, the most beautiful and the best form uh, 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 an interpretation and attempt at bringing the order of the sacred sharia in the earth and that's what the people love them for uh, that loved them and that's why the soldiers would obey their orders. That's why, interestingly enough, in the Ottoman state, I don't know that anyone could be executed except for if there was a tasdiq, uh, you know, given by by a qadi, by a judge, a, sharia, a judge of the sharia court, which is really amazing because the Ottoman state was a pre-modern state. And, you know, there's no concept of rights in the in the modern sense. But the idea is that uh, even even uh, you know high-ranking military officers and bureaucrats and cabinet ministers and governors, they didn't have the the right to rule, uh, you know, just by decree or rule uh, uh, just autocratically. And yes, it is you know the the, the history isn't far from ideal. So sometimes the uh, the sultan would have the sheikh al-Islam executed, but sometimes the sheikh al-Islam would have the sultan executed. Um, uh, you know, and these are not definitely, these are neither scenario is a good scenario. Something is really horrible has gone wrong if, if either of them is happening. But the point is, is this, is that, you know, the, the legitimacy of the state at its highest levels was directly tied with, uh, a mandate given only by those who are, uh, who are, who, who, you know, who are striving in order to bring uh, the order from the celestial realm into 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 the into the farsh into the under the ground uh, as it was as it were and so what happens is that you have now like large numbers of you know large numbers of these uh, these type of people who are trained in material sciences um, but 
not necessarily able to reconcile that with many of the teachings and the concepts of Islam. And you have numbers of people, large numbers of people who are trained in the robust philosophical and uh, uh, the r- robust usuli principled uh, uh, mode of thinking that uh, Islam brought and that the ulama developed and, exp- developed and uh, expounded and defined um, uh, that allowed these massive pre-modern states uh, in which people of different religions and different uh, you know, uh, ethnicities and different languages and uh, you know, all sorts of different, uh, you know, different uh, demographic uh, indicators to live you know, with one another in a, in, a, in a viable state without the help of technology and without the help of like overwhelming, uh, overwhelming amounts of wealth or whatever, uh, except for what they could earn by their own hand. Again, using pre-modern means. Um, it's nothing short of amazing. It's nothing short of incredible. Now you have two groups of people within the state, both of which are necessary for, necessary for the viability of the state, and both of which have a genuine, have a genuine love for Islam and have a genuine love to see Islam succeed and have a genuine love to see the, the, the not just the uh, you know religious uh, ascendancy, but also the political and economic uh, ascendance and dominance of, of Islam. But what they see as both the definition of success and at some point or another, the definition of Islam itself, it's now become divergent. And that divergence has continued you know from from that time until this time and it's still there it's still stark you can still see it in uh, a lot of uh, in a lot of places in the muslim world and it's an issue it's a problem and i think one of the things uh, with regards to us in the united states or in england or you know to some degree places like south africa or even in the indian subcontinent by the ulama who are conversant in english uh, because we do have a number of people, for example, that study in Darul Uloom or study in the Madars in, um, in the uh, Indian subcontinent that may have been people who did some, you know, whatever English medium school or, uh, you know, some type of professional degree before, uh, before going back to study deen. Uh, or there are a number of movements, a uh, number of tariqahs or movements that basically cultivate these types of people. And they have met with a great amount of success. Why? Because now you have in the Indian subcontinent, a, and those places that are culturally influenced by them, uh, a number of scholars that, you know, perhaps that chasm isn't so wide, or at least it shows a trajectory of reconciliation. But uh, sadly, sadly, uh, you know, I think it's uh, that reconciliation it's somewhat of a false mirage and uh, uh you know it's uh if it's not false if that's a bit of a excess and a harshness which maybe it is um i i i would i would I, you know if someone were to say that you you know that's excessive I, I i would give due consideration to that that claim but the problem is this is even if that reconciliation is happening it's like very little it's like too little too late or or, or at least too slow to uh, help us to as a umman, slowly, even as individuals, slowly but surely, even as individuals, to be able to bridge um, the divide that 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 that's opening up, that's really just swallowing huge swaths of our of our our, our civilization as an ummah. It's actually killing even uh, the concept of ummah itself, making it dissolve in front of our eyes. Uh, to the point where there are many people who, you know, just uh, the concept doesn't exist anymore like it did with our forefathers. It's just become like a type of lip service, uh, which may have been the case for like political actors. Um, but, you know, in general, the rank and file of the Muslims always uh, bought into this uh, wholesale, bought into this concept that whoever says la ilaha illallah, that person, I see myself in them and I see them in me and their happiness is my happiness and their distress is my distress and their pain is my pain and their success is my success. And so, uh, you know, uh, that all of these things, we see them, they're, they're getting ripped apart in front of our eyes and it's problematic. And then, uh, you know, we have the sense that perhaps it's starting to get better because we have 
some ulama who are college educated or university educated who have you know some ability to speak english or who know some parts of the sciences or whatever uh, but however lo, lo and behold coronavirus pops up in front of us and it just lays bare the fact that there are a large number of people in every muslim country and in every community even here in america that are very educated in the medical sciences or very educated in uh, you know politics or you know in the law or whatever and they have one way of thinking and there are a number of people who are very educated in the deen and they have another way of thinking and it seems like the 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 gap between them is irreconcilable and the fact of the matter is it's not irreconcilable it is very reconcilable but the problem is that that civilizational infrastructure that was needed in order to uh, in order to harmonize between these disparate uh, types of specialization and knowledge um, the acquisition of the material sciences had to happen so quickly that that harmonization did not happen over any sort of organic time scale and uh, you know in some ways it didn't really ever happen at all and here we are, square one again, with uh, people uh, ranting and screaming. And there are always some people who are like this, that were like, you know, the mullahs are backwards and they're going to kill us all. And, uh, you know, we should just send them all to jail and kill them all and shoot them and, until they're gone. You know, we're not going to make any headway and we're not going to develop and blah, blah, blah. There are always people like that, but they're kind of like stuffy, you know, speak Lord Mountbatten uh, 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 you know, uh, turn of the uh, the 20th century, uh, you know, English accent uh, type people who, you know, uh, are wearing ascots or, you know, may as well be wearing ascots and like smoking a pipe. Um, you know, those type of people are few and far between. And they don't, don't necessarily share the hopes and aspirations of the general public nor do they represent them. And those type of people always, you know, would speak ill of the ulama. Um, but this time it doesn't feel like that's where it's coming from. It feels like something more than that. And on the flip side, you have, you know, ulama that are talking about things like la adwa means that the contagion doesn't exist in the first place. And that, you know, or so one of the forwards that I received um, a couple of days ago and it's starting to spread by certain individuals that I feel like are very opportunistic. And I don't, I never had a whole lot of confidence in them in the first place that, uh, you know, the hadith, you know, that's there in the Sahih books about, you know, that the aha, the like pestilence that is, you know, plagued a particular crop when the star of Thuraya rises, then, you know, it will take care of that pestilence. And uh, as far as I can tell, uh, that hadith is about a certain season, uh, you know, coming and curing a crop from a particular type of pestilence, nothing astrological, uh, or even astronomical, but just a, a, a mention of a certain stars rising, of Pleiades rising, uh, you know, because of its connection with, with a certain season or time of the year. Uh, and, uh, you know, what are meteorological uh, uh, phenomenon associated with it that will, you know, stave off that pestilence. And then people are taking this to mean that, oh, look, you know, like May 15th, Corona is going to disappear or whatever. Um, and, one could be forgiven for taking those things literally in an age where that knowledge wasn't present. But now, you know, we have, we have people who are seemingly learned people who are stumped and puzzled by these types of things. And you have further than that, you have these ideas about like, for example, like lockdown. What happens in lockdown is non-essential, uh, you know, non-essential sectors of the economy they have come to a grinding halt and only essential sectors are open. And every qawm, every, every uh, nation will decide for itself what is essential and what's not. So in the United States, you, you still hop an, you know, an airplane flight from one place to another. And uh, you know, there are places in, uh, uh, in the world where domestic flights have all been suspended. And uh, like I said, every nation will decide what is essential and what's not essential. Now you have this idea where there's a class of people for whom the salat is essential and a class of people for whom you, you know, praying salat in the masjid, no matter how much, uh, no matter how much social distancing and precaution you take, it's just going to cause, uh, you know, people to die. And even one death is unnecessary. And let's just call off the whole salat. 
And this is an issue. It's, it's an issue because from one side, it's like, look, people are going to die. And from the other side, there's this understanding that the Salat itself, the, its iqama, its uh, uh, establishment, uh, and its you know congregational performance in whatever mode, uh, uh, maximal or, 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 or mitigated or minimal, uh, you know, different models of, of, of having it. You know, do you want to call as many people as possible? Or do you want to tell everybody who, uh, you know, is immunocompromised or has an immunocompromised person or high-risk person at home not to come, but still have all those people who don't have those risk factors to come? Uh, or do you want to have something minimal where you just have Jumu'ah with like, you know, Imam plus 13 people or Imam plus uh, three people as it were, uh, according to the Hanafi Fatwa or Imam plus uh, or 40 people, including the Imam or perhaps not including the Imam, according to the Shafi'i school. Like, what do you, you know, what do you want to do? Uh, or do you want to just shut it down altogether? And there are very uh, stark differences in terms of modes of thinking, understanding of of the nusus, of the, the, the texts of Islam, and um, at the end of the day, understanding of what the objective is of having civilization in the first place, what the objectives are of having a state in the first place, what the, objective, the objectives are of you know, having ummah in the first place. That's more than just everybody go to their own masjid on Friday and then like uh, say, lakum dinukum waliyadin, which is an utterance that was reserved for the kuffar, uh, from the Muslims, uh, from the Muslims for the kuffar in the Meccan era, uh, and definitely not a way that the Ummah is supposed to deal with one another. Um, and so, uh, you know, like what what model are we gonna what model are we gonna use? And people just talk past each other. And uh, you know, the fun part is like <laughs> being a person who has kind of a foot in both uh, in both worlds. Uh, uh, admittedly, I'll never be uh, a hardened materialist, and admittedly, I'll never be, um, I'll never be like a, a, you know a, a, the mullah that drank the tradition from the uh, you know from for, you know from the breast of the mother, as it were. Uh, I'll never be a pure uh, a pure mullah, even though I may dress like it or try to dress like it. It's just overcompensation, you know. It's me trying to find find out find out who I am. It's why I'm an American, because look, this guy's overcompensating, you know, whereas another person wouldn't be trying so hard. Um, they wouldn't be so over the top. So as a person who has kind of a foot in both worlds, um, and a person who kind of liked to think of himself as someone who, um, you know, is part of the solution and bridging the gap between those two worlds. I see even myself, I feel somewhat like helpless at, uh, at seeing how how much of a fail that attempt is in this in this age, and how much if I even try to open my mouth and talk about these things, uh, I'll immediately uh, come to the conclusion it would have been better just to shut up and like not even get involved with it because it's something it's like a gar gargantuan monster problem uh, that anyone who tries to mess with it at this point is probably going to get trounced and take a beating from both sides. So. You know, I, I understood that from the beginning, and this is why I thought it was a good use of my life to do things like teach like the Tahawiyah, which is essentially a pamphlet on Aqidah, and to teach things like Maliki Fiqh, even though very few people come and listen, and uh, those who do oftentimes are not, you know, don't don't stick with it, and uh, more more often than not, I just get a beating from people who are like, well, you know, like you're close-minded and dogmatic and sticking to the, you know, this book or that thing of the madhab and like, you know, you should be open-minded Maliki, which means like say Maliki and everything's possible. Um, you know, like, but I thought it was worth my time. Why? Because the idea is if you have people who have these disparate assumptions uh, upon which they base their, their life's teachings, uh, by giving people a glimpse into each other's world, perhaps some sort of reconciliation is possible. And uh, I feel very frustrated and overwhelmed that uh, the the work I've done in my adult life, it seems to be very uh, too little and not having any effect on anything. Um, but in the absence of anything else, and because a person of Iman is a person of optimism, and not necessarily because of the creation, because if you run the numbers, uh, it's not looking good but because of uh, hope and faith in the Creator, Jalla wa'ala, uh, who created the heavens and the earth from nothing, and uh, who in every moment makes tajdeed of the, uh, uh, of the entire creation in every breath, 
and if he wishes to he can make difficulty into ease and ease into difficulty and all of the rationality which with with which we think the only reason any of it makes sense is because he wants it to uh, that that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, when we think of him and we think that he's the one that our hopes are pegged on and he's the one that our hearts are are connected to um, then you have to be an optimist no matter what's what's happening uh, because of that uh, uh, you know I think even though I get a lot of these thoughts nowadays of like just run away and stop wasting your time just you know make your dunya enough that you can pay off your house or you can pay your bills or you can you know find some simple place to live and just read your books and say Allah Allah until the day of judgment if someone wants to come read from you they can come read from you Otherwise, I spent all of my days and nights answering people's questions on WhatsApp and on Messenger and on email and, you know, in person and in private and all of these things by the phone and whatever. And it seems that uh, none of the people uh, and none of the efforts that you put in, they all seem to have come up for naught in the face of this, uh, in the face of this, uh, you know, this one test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that has shown that people still are not getting it. That uh, a great number of the ulama are not getting it, and a great number of the uh, you know, of the uh, of the materialist uh, people. And when I say materialist, I don't mean as a point you know that they believe in material. They believe in Allah, but their primary orientation in terms of the way they think about things is is maddi. It's it's materialist. That it's not it's not happening. So uh, to take a step back from teaching the ilm. Uh, uh, in general, because I see that our materialist friends who are very usually very keen uh, on harping on religious people. Why? Because they say religious people are ex extremely dogmatic, that they, um, they fixate on little things and then they become closed-minded and they don't accept anything anyone else says and they feel like I'm right and you're wrong and they're just like really, uh, they become really uh, uh, obstinate and belligerent, you know, um, because of their dog, dog, dogmatism. I see those are the same people who are like, yeah, you know, uh, all the ulama are wrong and this alim is wrong and that alim is people, you know, they, you know, they're all idiots. And like, I'm talking about people who, uh, you know, in social media and in public, uh, consider themselves to be champions of Islam or of traditionalism or people who work for the ummah or activists. Some of them even consider themselves students of knowledge or scholars or whatever that's supposed to mean. You know, uh, but when somebody who can barely uh, read Arabic, um, even though they're proficient at giving the khutbah and MSA, when that person will say something ignorant about someone like Mufti Taqi, somebody who wrote like a, a several volume uh, uh, commentary on the transactions in Sahih Muslim or whatever, you know something has gone wrong. You know, something wrong is happening here. And so... Uh, given, given that all of these things are being laid bare right now, and given that, uh, how am I going to teach knowledge to people when uh, even such basic assumptions are, are dysfunctional? I thought we would start our Ramadan Majalis by reading from a, a simple book uh, uh, um, that's translated into the English language from Arabic. Uh, the Arabic work is called Warathatul Anbiya by Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali. And it's translated in English by Imam Zaid Shakir. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect him and give him long life. Uh, Allah Ta'ala has given him riyasa and the leadership of a, a great deal of our uh, community in North America. And from a number, amongst the people who have this riyasa in their hand, uh, I, I really respect him and feel that he's one of the more worthy ones. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I pray Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala uh, let him wield it uh, in, 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 with wisdom and hikmah uh, and not waste it. Uh, that uh, this book is a book about seeking knowledge and uh you know many adab are mentioned in it and uh the point of adab because you know we we hear that the ulama say that you know so and so uh you know uh said you know, learn adab before you learn uh learn knowledge and i spent so many years learning adab and then afterwards so many years learning knowledge and adab is more important than knowledge. And where's your adab CD? And oh, so-and-so is playing the adab card. And adab, adab, adab. And the thing is, we oftentimes translate adab as manners. And uh, it's not necessarily manners, but it's the correct way of going about doing something. It's doing something in the best way possible. And so I thought we would take this majlis, inshallah, at least the first uh, uh, number of nights of it. And 
do something that we would do in the Khanqa, which is read books of, of use. Uh, and this book is a book in which we can uh, go through some of the virtues and the adab of learning knowledge. Uh, because it seems like the information is going in, but the adab are, are, are gone. And uh, the point of the adab is not necessarily so that when you're sitting with the ulama, you'll know, you know uh, how to eat the salad with the salad fork or whatever. That's all nonsense. Nobody cares about that. You know, it's not nonsense that you should say to this person Molana and this person Hazrat Molana and this person Sidi and this person Khaja and this person Afendi and this person Khaja Afendi and this person is Hazrat and this person is Hazrat Lar and this person is, you know, whatever. That's not that's not what I'm talking about. You know, which color topi to wear on which day of the week. I could give a I could give a damn about any of those things. You know, I really I mean when push comes to shove, uh, those are not the things that'll get you into Jannah and they're not gonna be the ones that throw you into hellfire. And they're not going to be the ones through which the ascendancy and the uh, 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 the, the ascendancy of Islam, uh, culturally, uh, spiritually, uh, politically, economically, they're going to be made or they're going to be broken. Um, these are like the kind of white elephant trappings of court culture, uh, uh, which is a type of excess. There's a beauty in them, and in that sense, that's fine. I don't necessarily you know hate on them too much. But uh, that beauty and those mustahsanat and those tahsiniyat, uh, 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 to put it in the Shatibian model, um, they're on the heels of the the uh, the proper performance of the dhururiyat, those things that are dire necessities, and the hajiyat, those things that are that are that are are needed. Um, you know, the dire necessities and the 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 the. the the necessities that make up the bulk of what's important in our deen. Then on top of that, yes, uh, you know, if somebody is already half of the Quran and, and they're going to lead Tarawih and, you know, there's three candidates, then we'll worry about the one who has a better voice uh, thereafter. But you can't just have someone say, well, you know, I have a beautiful voice. I haven't memorized the, the Quran, but, you know, I can sing Bruce Springsteen or, or Morrissey or, you know, something other ludicrous, Depeche Mode or something like that. Uh, ludicrous type of nonsense, you know, I can sing Britney Spears really nice between the raka'at, um, that's kind of a fail. Now, w- one might find uh, these examples a bit comical uh, and excessive, but the issue is this, is that if you don't approach the other pro- the knowledge properly, then it doesn't do for you what it's supposed to. And uh, that's the problem. So inshallah, we read a little bit Inshallah, Imam Zaid starts the, uh, the the book with a brief biography of Ibn Rajab. He says he is Imam Zainuddin Abu Faraj, Abdul Rahman ibn Ahmad ibn Rajab al Hambali, uh, uh, born uh, uh, in Baghdad uh, in seven thirty six of the Muslim calendar. At the age of eight, he moved to Damascus along with his father. It was in Damascus that he began his religious studies. He first memorized the Qur'an in its variant canonical readings. He then began the study of Hadith, a study which would take him to Makkah Mukarramah, to Egypt, and other Islamic centers of learning. Ibn Rajab took from the leading scholarly authorities of his day. However, he was especially influenced by the great Hanbali scholar uh, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyya. Although he was known to issue some legal rulings based on the opinions of Ibn Taymiyyah, it isn't possible that he ever studied with him, as some imagine, owing to the fact that Ibn Taymiyyah died eight years before Ibn Rajab's birth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy on all of them. And then Ibn Qayyim, who he did study from, by the way, is obviously the most famous and well-known and beloved and loving student of Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Rajab was the leading hadith scholar of his age, an eminent Qur'an scholar, a jurist of repute, a moving sermonizer, and a major historian. His enduring literary legacy includes Jamil Ulum al-Hikam, the Compendium of Knowledge and Wisdom, considered by most scholars to be the best commentary on Imam Nawawi's 40 Hadith. The Sharh Ilal al-Tirmidhi, an explanation of the hidden defects in Hadith, a partial commentary on Sahih Bukhari al-Qawaid al-Fiqhiyya, uh, uh, and Lata'if al-Ma'arif, the subtleties of knowledge, a beautiful compilation of the religious duties and invocations that correspond to the months and seasons of the year. By the way, uh, you know, making writing a sharh of the ilal of Tirmidhi is a big deal. Just understanding the ilal of hadith, it's one of the most technical and one of the most demanding, uh, uh, one of the most demanding uh, subspecialities in the study of hadith. 
Um, and so someone's not going to be able to explain those things inside out except for uh, through, through, through a, a type of mastery that very few people will ever uh, be able to conceive of what it means, much less attain it. He has written many comprehensive commentaries on individual hadiths, commentaries which amount to independent books. This includes his commentary on the hadith of Abu Darda, anhu, the subject of this translation, and his commentary on the hadith of Bada al-Islam gharibah Islam began, began as something strange or unknown. Among his major historical writings is Dhail Tabaqat al-Hanabila, an appendage to the Encyclopedia of Hanbali Scholars. Given to solitude, deeply pious and known for uh, the abundance and intensity of his worship, Ibn Rajab passed from this world in Damascus in the year 795 after Hijra. It is related that he went to a grave digger a few days before his death and requested him to begin digging. When the digger completed his task, Ibn Rajab descended into the grave, reclined at it, and remarked, Excellent. A few days later, Ibn Rajab passed on, and his body was brought to that very grave uh, to be interred therein. Buried in Damascus, he left a rich heritage of knowledge. God willing, this book will introduce a small part of that heritage to the English-speaking world. So uh, we begin, inshallah, the book. And we will, uh, inshallah, carry on with our readings through the next couple of nights with the hope that for, perhaps it will open some understanding of how this knowledge should be approached um, from those people who mean well, uh, for, uh, that are advanced in the material sciences of this ummah, so that they can also try to ha wrap their head around uh, the way the, uh, the, the, the sacred sciences of the deen work. Uh, in order to get on with the, the important necessary task of reconciliation because it's going to take all of us to make the ummah happen. Uh, it's going to take all of us in order to make this ummah flourish again. And it cannot happen just through money. It cannot just happen through scientists. It cannot just happen through doctors. It cannot just happen through um, material or political power, just like it can't happen just through, uh, you know, just through writing a commentary on Sahih Bukhari or Muslim. And it cannot happen just through ilm kalam or through Arabic grammar. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu tabarak wa ta'ala wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. يقول المؤلف في الترجمة رحمهم الله تبارك وتعالى المؤلف والمترجم رحمهم الله تبارك وتعالى في الدارين ونفعنا بعلومهما بعد دعائي ربي يسر ولا تعسر وتمن بالخير ربي يسر ولا تعسر وتمن بالخير ربي يسر ولا تعسر وتمن بالخير الحديث في أبو الدرداء a man came to Abu Darda anhu while he was in Damascus. Abu Darda, obviously the famous Quran reciter from Khazraj and uh, famous faqih and alim uh, of, this, of the companions anhum, who was sent to Damascus to teach the people their knowledge. By Sayyidina Umar anhu, nonetheless. A man came to Abu Darda while he was in Damascus. Abu Darda asked him, What has brought you here, my brother? He replied, a hadith which you relate from the Prophet Abu Darda asked, Have you come to me for some worldly need? He replied, No. Have you come for business? He replied, No. You have come to me only to seek this hadith? He said, Yes. Abu Darda then said, I heard the Messenger of Allah وسلم, say, Whoever travels a path seeking sacred knowledge, uh, and in the hadith it's ilm, and whoever travels a path seeking knowledge, Allah will place him on a path leading to paradise. The angels lower their wings for the student of knowledge, pleased with what he is doing. The creatures in the heavens and the earth seek forgiveness for the student of knowledge, even the fish in the water. The superiority of the scholar of, of deen, the alim, the person of knowledge, over the devout worshiper is like the superiority of the full moon over the other heavenly bodies, over the stars. The scholars are the heirs of the prophets. The prophets leave behind no money uh, as a bequest. Rather, they leave behind knowledge, and whoever seizes it has taken a bountiful share. And it's narrated by Imam Ahmad and by Abu Dawood and by Tirmidhi and uh, Ibn Majah. Uh, 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 all of them, they relate this hadith in their compilations. Chapter 1, Traveling for Sacred Knowledge the early generations of Muslims, owing to the strength of their desire for sacred knowledge, would journey to distant lands seeking a single prophetic hadith. 
Abu Ayyub, Zayd bin Khalid uh, uh, al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala anhu traveled from Medina to Egypt for the purpose of meeting another companion because he had heard that this companion related a particular hadith from the Prophet sallallahu Similarly, Jabir ibn Abdullah, despite uh, hearing much from the Prophet sallallahu himself, traveled a month from Syria just to hear a single hadith. Without hesitation, such men would travel to someone of lesser virtue and learning in order to seek out knowledge that they themselves lacked. So inshallah, that's just the beginning, uh, so that this darsh, or this uh, majlis doesn't go on for too long. We'll uh, wrap up shortly, uh, just so that uh, uh, you know, uh, the companions, if they were not too good to, you know, bust some hustle in order to go and, and, and learn, study something, neither should we uh, be too good for that. Nor should we expect people, uh, you know, bradley expect people uh, answer our questions to our satisfaction on uh, social media or on uh, on the phone, even though people don't even have the the for phone no more. Uh, and uh, you know, even those of us who are uh, people of learning and scholarship, you know, we should never uh, be too big of a peer or too big of a molana or too big of a molvi or a sheikh. Uh, or too big of a CD to uh, you know sit and take darses um, uh, anymore. I myself still take durus. Uh, I in fact took a dars just today, um, and I only mentioned that uh, you know tahaduthan bi ni'matillahi and just to let you know that it's a thing. It is possible just to encourage you, and Allah knows uh, the many defects in my in my seeking. Um, but inshallah, with that we'll uh, leave off inshallah and we'll continue tomorrow. Allah Taala make it uh, mubarak Ramadan. Allah Ta'ala accept from all of us. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, uh, inshallah, by the barakah of this fikr and this intention to rectify our own states and the states in the Ummah of Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us what we seek and uh, ward off from our heads calamity and tribulation in this world and the hereafter. Wa sallallahu wa ta'ala wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad. وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته